So I have recently taken up running. It's kind of a hobby that I have um, enjoyed the past year or so. And my reason for taking up running is because I planned on running the Detroit Marathon. I thought, man, that'd be so cool to run across the bridge. This is an opportunity that they had, obviously, before COVID. So I was looking forward to that. But now, because of COVID and many other reasons, it's hard enough to drive across than run across. So I haven't been able to, to run that race, but I am running a race the next week week or so. So I'm, I've been training, preparing for that race um, many years, many not years, two years, I guess, but many t training sessions, long training sessions, some of them boring, some of them hard. Many times where I actually didn't want to get out of bed. Recently, it started to get cold. I don't really want to get up in the morning and run in the cold. It's not enjoyable, but I've known that I have to do it because if I don't get the training in, I am going to struggle to achieve the goal that I've set. So I have ran, I have gotten up, I have trained. I may not have done it as much as I'd like to, but I've done what I've known is right because I know it'll benefit my goal. Now, as we open up scripture today, we're gonna see a similar idea. We're gonna see that doing good, doing the right thing, doing good is tiring. It's not always enjoyable. It's not always fun, but we do the right thing because it's eternally valuable. So if you're taking notes, that's probably what you're gonna to wanna to take down. That's our, our main theme that we're gonna look at today is that doing good is tiring, but it's eternally valuable. So we're gonna be in Galatians chapter six, um, verses seven to 10 there. But before we read that together, I wanna to give us a little background and then we'll pray before we um, read God's word. So what is the reason Paul has written Galatians? So we're at the end of Galatians chapter six. So let's give us a little understanding as to what this letter is about. So Paul has written this letter to the church in Galatia, hence the name Galatians. And he's writing it because there's a false gospel that's infiltrated the church. This idea that you need to believe in Jesus and do other things. It was often from the people group known as the Judaizers who were a Jewish group of people who had come to know Jesus or come to believe in Jesus, but were adding onto the gospel of Jesus. So Paul's calling him out saying, that's not accurate, that's not true. The Gentiles do not need to follow the same practices that the Jews did old covenant. So because of that, some of the Gentiles are like, great, that's awesome. We don't need to follow that authority anymore. Let's just live life however we want. Let's just do whatever we want. We believed in Jesus, so life is great now. We can live and act however we want. At the end of Galatians, Paul is pushing back against that as well, saying no, we are not called into libertinism. We're not called to just, God has forgiven us of our sins, so who cares how we live because we've been forgiven. Paul says that is also a false gospel as well. So he's calling both of these people together and saying, let's look at the one true gospel as to what Jesus has done for us, how we obey him and live lives that follow him, right? What does it mean to believe in Jesus and walk in his spirit? That's what the purpose of this passage is gonna be. And that's what we're gonna look at in Galatians 6. So before we read God's word, let's just take a, a moment to pray to God that he will reveal to us what he wants us to learn. Dear God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the ways that you have changed us and shaped us over the, the many years and times we've been able to look into your word. I pray that you will reveal to us what you want us to see this morning that you will steer us and direct us to live lives that honor you. And we could know what it means to follow you for the rest of our days, regardless of how easy or hard it may be. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Galatians 6 verse seven says this. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this is an awesome passage that I've had the privilege of mulling over over the past couple months. Um, And what I think is cool about it is just a few verses, but it's kind of set up perfectly for us already. Verse nine is kind of the main theme that we're looking at, that doing good is tiring, but it's eternally valuable. Verse 10 gives us some practical application and verse seven and eight kind of gives us the illustration. So there's your sermon right there. I can kind of walk off and you can just reread that a few times. Um, But let's kind of dig deeper and understand this a little better. There's a few phrases that we need to understand in order to see it clearly. So what is he getting at? He's saying that doing good is tiring. So what is doing good? That's the first question we need to ask. Doing good is sowing to the spirit. Doing good is sowing to the spirit, the spirit of God. So that sounds great. Now that we got that under, under control, we, we understand that. But what is sowing to the spirit? You might say, okay, that's, that's easy to say, but what does it mean? What is sowing to the spirit? Sowing to the spirit is a deliberate planting to the spirit's commands. That means purposely choosing to sow your life into what God has called us to do, into the spirit. So the audience that Paul was teaching to would have seen this and understood this initially very easily, right? They were in agrarian culture. They did a lot of farming. They would have understood the illustration used here pretty easily. And I think it's kind of cool. We can understand it as well. And the idea that what you sow is what you will reap. So if you sow wheat in a field, when the harvest comes, you don't get barley, you get wheat. That's pretty obvious, right? What you sow is what will grow and what you will receive, right? It's a pretty obvious general principle that we see in life. And Paul brings this up because this general principle is also true spiritually. When you plant to the Spirit's commands, you will reap from the Spirit. That which you sow, you will reap. Now, we've seen this to be true in our own lives, just practically. If you eat lots of junk food all the time, you're not going to feel good. You're not going to live a healthy lifestyle. If you drive fast in icy conditions, you're likely to get into a car accident, right? This is a well-known principle we see in life around us. The way that you act, what you sow into, you will reap from. The same goes spiritually that we're seeing here. If you sow to your own flesh, you will get corruption. But if you sow to the spirit of God, you will gain eternal life. That's the principle that we're seeing here. Now, an illustration that we're going to go back to a few times, I want you to picture this in your own life, is your life is a field, a farmer's field. Think about that. We see this a lot in Windsor-Essex. There's tons of farmer's field. Think of your life like a field. Can you picture it? So you are going to reap what you sow into that field, what you plant in that field. And we are always planting. We're always planting in our field of life. We're always planting into it. Sowing to the spirit looks like this. It looks like relying on God to change me, what I'm unable to do in myself, calling upon him. It's a deliberate action to sow to the spirit, not to the flesh. It means getting into God's word, seeing how he wants me to live, loving someone when I don't feel like it, when it's not easy, apologizing when I don't want to. These are ways that we sow to the spirit. And through these acts, God produces in us a harvest, a harvest, which is the fruit of the spirit. Do you see that? So 
We know this, we can understand this a little bit. Sowing to the spirit is good, but why? Why is sowing to the spirit doing good? Why is it doing good? Because it fills that field of your life with fruit, with good fruit. It also prevents weeds from growing up in your life. Weeds are sins that have not been dealt with, that have not been repented of, that have not been appropriately handled. When these weeds grow in our life, they ruin the field, right? If you have a garden, you don't want weeds growing in your garden. They choke out the plants. They, they kill the fruit of the life. Sometimes you might chop them off. Sometimes they grow tall because you weren't paying attention or aware that they were there and they must be dug out and gotten rid of. They're gonna choke out what you've sown if they don't. Repentance is how we get rid of these weeds. By repenting and continuing to live life the way God has called us to, we are sowing to the spirit and we are doing good. So have you ever been in a crisis situation or helped someone that was in a crisis situation? Maybe it was you going through it um, and the person you're helping or the person that's helping you says to you, you know, I just have this temptation to hurt others or hurt myself or just continue to do what I know I shouldn't do. I just keep going back to it. I keep going back to it. And the one who's helping the other person, maybe it's you in the situation says, you know, you need to cut that out of your life. You need to cut that person, cut that idea, just cut that out of your life and then you'll be good. You just need to stop thinking that way, stop acting that way. And while that may be a component of finding what you're looking for, does that solve the issue of cutting it out? No, it doesn't solve the issue. It actually creates a vacuum, a space where you have now cut something out, but there's nothing in that place. It's gonna grow back. It's gonna reappear like a farmer that's desperate to keep weeds out of his field, but nothing is planted. When the wind blows more weeds into his field, they're gonna grow again. When the roots grow from the weeds that were there before, they're gonna keep sprouting up because there's nothing planted in that field. They're gonna keep coming back. Now, recently my wife and I, we moved into a house that we'd purchased last year or so ago. And we did a lot of renovations to the house. My, my parents helped as well. And the last step to finishing up the house was laying down sod um, to make the house look nice, right? And as we prepared to lay down sod, we had to dig up the garden, dig up the, all the ground that was really just weeds and lay down sod. You ever notice that weeds just appear? No one really plants them, at least not the weeds that we're talking about, no one really plants, but they disappear, right? Unless someone's tending to an area and planting something else there, something's gonna take its place. Something's just gonna appear, it's gonna show up because we are always planting in our lives, whether planting to the spirit or we're, or we're planting to our flesh. And there is gonna be something that's gonna grow. We're not just neutral. We're not just relaxing, not really planting, leaving our field completely empty. Something is gonna grow in that place. And when we do good, which is sowing to the spirit, we are filling our field with good plants. And that only, not only is that a good thing, but that prevents weeds from growing in our lives. So a question to ask yourself is this, what have you been sowing? What have you been sowing in your life? Have you been sowing what is good or have you been sowing to your flesh? The previous chapter in Galatians, Galatians 5, it tackled this idea of the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. One we receive naturally, one we are given from God, right? One from, comes from living a selfish life of pursuing our own desires. One comes from following God above all else. And the fruit of the spirit is a result that God does in us to bring about life. So that's why doing good is good 
because it's God's gift to us. Sowing to the spirit is a direct contrast to sowing to the flesh. They're opposites. It can't be a bright, sunny day and a cloudy, gloomy day at the same time. It's one or the other. You can't be sowing to the spirit and living your life to the flesh at the same time. It's one or the other. You can't. Galatians 5, as I brought up, Paul teaches the listeners that if you are not doing good, you are doing evil. There's no neutral ground. He says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So we walk with and we keep in step with the spirit because that is living a good life that we have been called to. How can we do good? How do we do good? We do good by filling our field of life with good fruit, with good plants. The more we invest to the spirit, the more fruit we will see in our lives. We rely on the spirit for strength. We call upon him. We spend time with God. We communicate with God. We read his word. We get to know him better. What about the rest of your week? Not on Sunday mornings or, or when you're reading your Bible before you go to work. How do you spend your time at work? How do you spend your time communicating with other people? What do you do when you're eating? The Bible calls us to do all things for the glory of God. Whether you're eating, drinking, whatever you're doing, do it to the glory of God. All of our life, we are sowing, we are planting. How much have you been planting to the spirit and how much have you been planting to your own selfish desires? We are naturally a field that is full of weeds, but for fruit to occur, we must plant good seeds. Now, some of you may be thinking, that sounds great, Blake. That's, that's a really good idea. I need to plant to the spirit. I need to, to do what's right, do what's good. But I know the gospel, right? I know what God has said in his word. He says that I have received what I didn't sow. But you're telling me I need to sow good seeds in order to grow in God? That doesn't really make sense, right? God has given me a blessing that I didn't deserve. God has offered to me the fruit of Jesus's work, not my work. And I'm relying on that for my salvation. And that's absolutely true. We receive eternal life based upon the work of Jesus, not based upon what we've done. Because he died for us. He died our death. That leads us, to close, that leads us closer to God. It helps us recognize that we receive what we didn't sow. That's great. But many misinterpret this gift. And I think this might be where we fall with the latter half of the letter of Galatians, what Paul is writing. We often think Christ has set us free. We have received what we didn't deserve. So I'm gonna continue sowing corruption to watch God make good things out of it. No, that's a terrible way to think. That's a terrible way to live. God does not want you to live in your sin so that he can take your sin and make good things out of it. He wants you to live a life of obedience to him, of repentance to him, of sowing good seeds so that he can continue to offer you the good gift of the fruit of the spirit. We don't take this as a license to sin. We don't say, I'm gonna continue sinning. God has forgiven us. So what fear of punishment do we have of our sin? That's a poor way of thinking. If you live a life of sin, you will be rewarded for the life that you've lived. If you live a life of sin, you will be rewarded for that. If you believed in Jesus, you will find freedom from your sins. You will find eternal life. And he's calling you to something greater. He's calling you into obedience to him. You're in fact mocking God and you're trying to make a fool out of him if you live life sinning continuously after you've believed in him. He didn't save you to sit in your sin. He saved you to sow good seeds. So we obey him by deliberately planting to the Spirit's commands. So that's what it means to do good. Doing good 
is what we're called to, but we'll also see that doing good is actually tiring. Doing good is tiring because we don't see immediate results. That's why it's tiring. We don't immediately see the fruit of doing good. Okay, you wanna live life in obedience to God? You wanna continually sow good seeds? You're not gonna see immediate fruit right away. You're not gonna see the result of the life that you lived right away. Let's look back at verse nine. Verse nine says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So this illustration of farming is obviously continued. A farmer sows or plants his field. And then what does he do? He waits. He waits once the seeds are planted. What farmer would go plant seeds in a field, go to sleep, and the next day wake up and start digging them up, hoping to find fruit from their labor? That would be foolish. You would go out of business very quickly. Might last one season, right? You would make no profits. You'd offer no fruit because when you sow or when you plant, you are required to wait. There is a growing period for that to occur. And we don't know exactly how long it takes, but there's a specific amount of time it takes for certain crops to grow. Does, does the farmer know the exact time? No, not exactly, but he waits because all the work that he is capable of doing is done. He's planted the seeds. Now he's relying on the rain, on the soil, on God to do his work through the plant. This again is a great example or principle for our lives spiritually. We do good by sowing to the spirit and in God's timing, he allows you to reap. He chooses when you receive that reward. Our culture hates that. We live in a world that despises the idea of patience or waiting. Long road trips, they don't happen anymore. We just take a flight there get there as quickly as we can. Waiting a week to watch a TV show or watching through commercials, nah, -uh. we don't want to do that anymore. We're going to binge watch it all on Netflix in one night, just see everything as fast as we can, get all of it at once, right? Even TV shows are not being less and less popular and less and less watched because we want to get our content in 30 seconds, 60 seconds on Instagram, TikTok, can't even sit through a YouTube video anymore, right? We have little patience, and when we're forced to exercise patience, we get worn out very quickly as people when we're called to do that. Scripture says, do not grow weary of doing good. Doing good is wearisome. It is. It causes us to get tired. We're called to trust in the one who provides and do as he says. So we don't jump ship when God is taking a while to bring about what we want quickly, right? He's moving slower than we are. That's okay. This principle is seen all in life and it's actually seen a lot in investing. So I don't know how many of you guys invest, how many guys or girls invest, but one of the popular things right now is investing in cryptocurrency. There's tons of money to be made in this area, but there's also tons of money to be lost. People love the idea of quick cash. Now, this is not new to our culture. This has been going on for generations of the idea of getting quick cash. But one of the big things right now is these small cryptocurrency projects that are very unknown to many people. People will dump money into them with hopes of making tons of money. You hear lots of stories of, man, if I invested this amount of money one year ago, it'd be worth this amount, but you didn't. And no one did. That's why it's worth that amount, right? They see the idea of, man, this project went up 500%, but they ignore it when it goes down 2,000%. When we try and get rich quick with these type of schemes, we often lose our money. And there's this term called in cryptocurrency called a rug pull, where people will create a project with the idea of getting people to dump money into it and then the founders will just pull the rug out, 
take all the profits and run and everyone has lost their money. Proverbs 13 verse 11 says, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains it little by little will increase it. This is a common principle. When you try and get rich quick, it's like gambling oftentimes if you don't know what you're doing. Paul takes this and he says, it's true with sowing as well. It's true with sowing to the spirit. It rarely offers immediate growth when you sow to the spirit. You rarely see, man, boom, wow, look at my life is 10 times better than it was just before I started praying, before I read God's word, right? Before I invested all that time. It's often over the long periods of time that you see the growth that God has brought you through. That's one of the great things about being in a life group, being a part of a church for a long time is you can look back, people can hold you accountable and say, man, I remember where you at five years ago. Look at what God has done in your life over the long period of growth that we see, right? How God has always been faithful. Sometimes we don't see the fruit that we've sown in our own life, right? Sometimes we won't even see it in our own lifetime, but God has called us to trust him that if we do good and consistently sow to the spirit, you will receive a reward, even though it's tiring. There is a reward. So are you willing to follow God even when you don't see the immediate fruit? Even when it's not in front of you, when hardship or trials come upon you, will you continue to do what's good or will you abandon what God is doing in you? We're called not to get tired of doing good. Now, there are many reasons why we get tired of doing good. There's lots of reasons. Discouragement is a big one. I think this has been a big one over the past two years, the discouragement that we face. We face discouragement from temptation. This is an obvious one in all of our lives. Sin that just keeps coming up. We can't get rid of it. We repent. We try and cut it out of our lives and it just keeps showing up its ugly head and we can't get rid of that sin in our life. We pray, God, please take this sin away from me. Please get rid of this and boom, it appears again. That's discouraging. That's very discouraging in our lives. The desire for us to gratify the flesh. Don't give in, don't give up. I know you're tired. You're tired of going through this. You're tired of doing good, but keep doing what is good. You will reap from the spirit when you do good. Keep filling that field. We also face discouragement from circumstances around us, right? The past couple of years have been very discouraging. Government overreach is discouraging. People leaving because of COVID is discouraging. Whether they move somewhere else, they leave church, they leave fellowship with you, that can be discouraging, right? That can bring us down, that can cause us to grow weary. We can face discouragement when friends or family tell us, you know, we're, just, we're following along because it's just gonna be over soon. It's all gonna be over soon if you just follow along. That can be discouraging to hear. It's also discouraging feeling like the battle is unwinnable. Okay, what happens if we continue to do what's good, is this even a battle that we will win? That's a discouraging thought that comes into our mind. These are all discouragements that we face based upon circumstances. We also face discouragement from working hard. Just doing the right thing can be discouraging. When you work hard, do a good job of loving others, it often goes unnoticed. Not everyone sees every good thing that you have done and is gonna encourage you about it. You're gonna do the right thing oftentimes and you're not gonna get a pat on the back. You're not gonna get a clap in front of other people. That, it's gonna go unnoticed or people will just grow accustomed to you doing those things and they're not gonna encourage you the way that you were before. That can be discouraging, but we don't give up. In all these areas, we don't give up. We keep doing what is right. We keep doing what is good because it provides us with perseverance. We will receive encouragement from doing good eventually. So how do we grow in light of this discouragement? We look to the promises of God. 
We don't look to others for their approval. We don't look to our circumstances or our situation for approval. We don't look to our own life and our own sanctification of how great we are or how, how poor we've been living for approval. Look to what God says in his word. What does he say in his word? He says he will never leave us. He will not forsake us. He will continue a good work in us and bring it to completion, whether that's the day that we die or whether it's some point in our lives, God has made many promises to us. Has he failed us before? He has not. He has always followed through on his promises. He has always kept his word. We can trust in him. God is always faithful. That's how we find encouragement in light of discouragement. When we are tired, when we don't wanna do the right thing, we look to God. We don't look to those around us to encourage us. We look to God for encouragement. And this is even how we live in our day-to-day life. We can face discouragement or realize, hey, it's hard work being a Christian, not even talking with other people, but reading God's word. Sometimes that's hard work, opening your Bible, putting in the time it takes to read scripture, that can be hard work. It's oftentimes more perspiration than inspiration, right? It's more time putting work in God's word, trying to understand it, than it will just be like, wow, God, this is amazing. You're just consistently revealing all these great things to me in my life. But we continue to persevere when doing good, even when it's tiring, because we know that God will produce fruit from the labor of us doing good. Now, this actually reminds me of a great story of a missionary named Jim Elliott. Some of you may know him. In, in the mid-50s, Jim went across to Ecuador as a missionary with a couple other missionaries. He learned the language. They saw great fruit of those coming to the faith in Ecuador on his missionary trips. And while they were there, they knew that there was a tribe of people there known as the Alcas. And every time outsiders had attempted to go and, and share the gospel with them or meet them, they were killed. So they'd never been approached or talked to and never had the gospel shared with them before. And, and as they had grown in this area in Ecuador, Jim was persistent to go with others to meet these people. So there was a couple long distance contacts. They dropped off some supplies for them once. They, they met with some at the fringe of their border before. And then there was one moment where Jim and his uh, missionary partner were able to have direct contact with two people in a river. And it was awesome. He was so excited. And he told them, come back with more people tomorrow. And we love to talk with you guys about Jesus. This, however, they were able to communicate this. That's what he did. So they stayed the night there, waited. No one showed up, waited. And then the next day, they saw two people waiting in the water and they ran out to meet with them, excited to share the gospel with them. And as they got close, he noticed that they were in the tree line. They were surrounded by a number of people holding up spears ready to throw at him. And he had to make a decision. Is he going to allow himself to get killed or is he going to pull his gun off his holster and try and defend himself? And in the moment, Jim made a decision that it was better for his life to be taken, one who knows Christ already, who has believed in Jesus, than for these people who haven't heard the gospel yet to have their life taken by him. And he was killed that day. He was killed. He didn't see any results from his work in their lives, right? He was just killed right away, left off. Later, his wife, two years later, his wife goes to the same area with a group of missionaries and they're able to be, um, to come alongside the Akas people. They are welcomed into the tribe. They shared the gospel with them. They saw many people come to know Jesus and she lived there up until a couple years ago when she died with her family for the past 60, 70 years in that tribe. Jim didn't see the fruit of his labor in that tribe. His wife did. Praise God that she was able to see the fruit of her work 
in that tribe, but we don't always see the results of what God is doing in us. We don't see the, the direct fruit, but we keep doing what is good because we know that regardless of how tired it is, there is a reward for it. And the reward is unmatched. That brings us to our final point. How is doing good valuable? It's value because for doing good, the reward is unmatched. There's nothing that compares to it. This illustration of farming is continued. We've reached the third simple stage of farming. If you break farming down into three stages, planting, waiting, and then harvesting. This is the final stage that we see here. The seeds, they've all been scattered. We've waited for them to grow. They've reached their appropriate size. And now the harvest have, has come. And the reward for doing good is, and patiently waiting on God is worth it. Why is it worth it? It's worth it because it's irreplaceable. The gift of grace cannot be replaced by anyone. It gives us our deepest desires. It makes us look like Jesus through the fruit of the spirit. The harvest is eternally valuable. It has ultimate worth because it is the result of a life that has been lived of honoring God. That's why it's worth it. A life of sowing into what is good. It is valuable. It's valuable. Now, when you think of valuables, I often think of collecting, people that are collectors. Anyone here collectors? Been to, big into collecting? Collectors are weird, if you think about it. Like, who decides the difference between a collector and a hoarder? Like, what, just one has something that's valuable by the majority of people, one has something that's not valuable, right? It's kind of odd, collectors and hoarders. Um, but when I was a kid, what was really popular was Pokemon cards. Now you may have heard this trend has come back. Pokemon cards are really popular again. People collected them, people saved them up for when they were kids. I did not. Um, but if you didn't realize in the past few years, a couple first edition Pokemon cards, some of the very first ones that came out have been sold for over hundreds of thousands of dollars US for these cardboard cards. Crazy, I know. The value that someone puts on an item is often what decides it's worth, right? Someone's willing to pay that, so that's what it's worth. If someone came up to you with one of these Pokemon cards and said, hey, I'm willing to sell this very rare Pokemon card to you for a few thousand dollars, most of you would say, nah, not interested, right? Yeah, it may be worth that much to someone, but I don't know anything about this. I have no interest in spending my money on this. I don't see the value in that card, right? That's probably where a lot of you are at, and understandably so. You understand it's valuable to someone, but not to you. How about doing what is good? Do you see that doing what is good is valuable? Is it valuable to you? Do you find worth in it? Would you value it more if it had a noticeable consequence or reward attached to it? If you knew that cheating on your spouse would, re would result in all of your limbs being removed, very few people, if anyone, would do that, right? That would be a very big consequence. If you knew that every time someone smoked a cigarette, they would get cancer immediately. Very few people, if anyone, would do that, right? The value of the desire compared to the value of the consequence or reward determines how you're gonna live. Think about that. The value of the desire that you have, how much do you desire what you want? Compare that to the consequence or the reward that you will receive from doing that desire. That's gonna determine how you live. Do you value your desire more than the consequence that you're gonna receive? Do you value your desire more than the reward that you are missing out on? Do you truly believe that sowing to the flesh will result in destruction? Do you believe that? Your life's actions 
have revealed what you believe. You may say, yep, I believe that, but you have been living your life sowing to the flesh. Your life proves that that's not actually what you believe. You may know it to be true, but you are not living that way. You are living a life of sowing to the flesh, which will result in destruction and corruption. It may not be immediate. You may not immediately see destruction in your life from sowing to the flesh. Life actually may seem pretty good to you by the world standards of living life how you want to live. But scripture is clear on this. What you sow into, you will eventually reap from. You will get what you have coming from a life you've lived. James 1 verse 14 and 15 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. What are you left with at the time of harvest? What is going to have grown at the end of your life when the sowing is done? Will it be death or will it be the gift of God that he has given us, the fruit of the spirit? God has offered us the ability to sow into his spirit, to invest in him, and he will bring forth the harvest. He will bring forth a reward that's undeserved, that's unachievable by you. One that offers you life and life eternally. One that restores you to your purpose, to the calling that mankind was created for. The text gives us two options. There's no middle ground here. You are either sowing to the flesh or you're sowing to the spirit. Inactivity is sowing regardless. One is easier than the other. One that scripture calls the wide, well-traveled road. Many follow this road. It has glimpses of satisfaction. It seems good at times. The other is called the narrow, less traveled road. Would you rather live a comfortable life with no purpose or a tiring life with eternal purpose? When you look back at the end of your life, will you be like, man, you know, my life was pretty relaxed. I did everything I wanted to do. I got a retirement home. I retired at a young age. I enjoyed every desire that I wanted to in my life. It was great. I lived life how I wanted to. But at the end of the day, for what? What do you look to? Where is your hope by the time that you die? Or you look back and be like, man, my life was tiring. I was constantly trying to do what is right. I was calling upon God and listening to him for direction. And though I went through trials, I didn't understand where I was going most of my life. God has brought me through and I know it was worth it. Would you rather live a comfortable life with no purpose or a tiring life with eternal purpose? The passage finishes with this, verse 10. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. We choose to do what's good even when we're tired, because it's worth it. We do good to everyone and we do good to believers. So let's start broad scale. We do good to everyone. We treat believers and non-believers alike with respect, even when we deeply disagree with them. We love them and defend them when they're being treated under injustices. And our lives should put the gospel on display for the world around us. Think about the Christians of the past. How have they done good or have sowed to the spirit for their cultures in the past. Christians historically were the ones who built the first orphanages. They were the ones who built the first hospitals, who built the first schools. They were the ones who stood against the numerous injustices in the past that affected generations of people. How are we doing good 
for those around us? How are we willing to stand up for biblical justice as we see in injustice around us? People being fired for injustices. How are we looking out for widows? How are we looking out for orphans? James 1, 27. Those that do not have the comfort of a supportive family in these tough times, those who've been cut off from their families, how we've been doing good to those around us. We stand up for mistreatment based on their economic status, based on their ethnic status, based on their social status. We stand up for these people and we most certainly learn from history that leaders are to be held to a high standard. These are ways that we can do good to our culture and those around us. It also means that oftentimes we have to say what people don't wanna hear. We have to share with others what they may not think they need, but they truly do. We don't sugarcoat the gospel. We don't hide what they need underneath what they want. The wages of sin is death. We don't sugarcoat that. God has says the wages of living a life of sin, of sowing into sin is death. God has said that to be true, but we still treat one another with dignity of the person that's made in the image of God. And they're not just a statistic. We're called to do good to others, to share the gospel with them, even when it's tiring. And finally, it says, do good to believers, especially to the household of faith, the church family. Why are we to do good to the church family? Because this is a sign of our faith. How we treat one another as Christians is a sign of our faith as to who we really are. We love and encourage both the non-believer and the believer because it could puts the gospel on display. But we can become overwhelmed thinking, man, I have so much that I have to do. I have to do good. I have to invest in here. I have to treat the non-believer well. I have to stand up for injustices. I have to stand up for my believer. I have to treat them other with respect, encourage them, love them, share the gospel. This sounds like a lot. This is discouraging. This is overwhelming. How do I make a difference in the world around me? Right? This is kind of where my mind goes with this. And the truth is, you don't need to make a difference to the whole world. Believe it or not, you don't need to make a difference to the whole world, but you do need to make a difference with the opportunities that you are given, where you are at, your group of friends, the group you're placed in, the workplace you're at, your family, we are called to make a difference there in every opportunity that we're given. And this reminds me of an illustration that my grandpa always says to me, and I love this story, it always stands out to me. It's a story like this. An older man is walking along a beach. And he sees a young man on the beach tossing a starfish into the ocean. And as he looks, he sees the beach is littered with starfish. They're everywhere, all over this beach. And the kid keeps picking down a starfish and just tossing them as far as he can into the ocean. And the old man, as he approaches him, asks the young kid, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm saving the starfish. And then as he looks around, he says, you see how many there are. There's no way you can make a difference. There's too many to be thrown in the ocean before it gets dark. The tide is low, they're gonna eventually die. You can't make a difference. And the kid just slowly picks up another starfish, hucks it back in the ocean and says, made a difference for that one. This is the call for our lives. We are not called to change the whole world, but we are called to make a difference where we are placed for Christ. And when we all collectively follow this, we as a church family, as believers, we make a difference for the world because we all in our different areas, as a foot, as a hand, as different parts of the body of Christ, we make a difference and we put the gospel on display. This is how we do good for the believers and the non-believer alike. Don't let the feeling of being overwhelmed prevent you from doing good. 
You may not be the one to pull your friends from the addiction. You may not be the ones to, to see your friend immediately come to faith, but you made an impact in their life. We collectively shared the gospel and have seen lives changed. There's tons of people that got baptized a couple weeks ago. You may not have been the one to directly impact them, but by you being here on a Sunday morning and worshiping with your hands high made an impact to them. Your worship made an impact to them. All of us, our lives as a church family, show the world and show everyone who comes in these doors that we love God, that he is first in our life, that he is a priority and we make a difference for those around us. This is also why we emphasize small groups here at Harvest, getting involved with a smaller group of believers to minister to one another, to care for one another. We can't always do that on a Sunday morning, but when you're in that small group, you can pray for one another in ways that you can't hear. You can act for one another in ways that you can't hear. We can love one another and encourage one another in ways that you can't in this big group here on a Sunday morning, mutual ministry for one another and calling on God and relying on him ultimately to give us that strength to offer others what we are unable to give. That's lasting hope, that's eternal, that's founding God, that is a reward that's worth it and ultimately points us to the cross of Jesus. And we're reminded he died for us, he has forgiven us, he gives us eternal life and our faith is founded in him. So we lovingly rebuke one another, we bear one another's burdens and we encourage one another knowing that ultimately it points us closer to God and draws us to the foot of the cross. That's what it's all about. This is why we must keep in step with the spirit, one step at a time. The journey may seem long, it's very tiring at times, but it is ultimately worth it. Don't give up, continue to do what's right because it is ultimately worth it. This is the call of the Christian, and this is the life we're called to this week.